From KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Phil Marriage, and this is Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Now in our 18th year on the air, the only program on radio today dedicated to the preservation of comparative generational thought. So let me welcome you to the crossroads of history. Our topic today has radically changed the course of many lives over the generations. We're going to be talking about stroke with my guest, all from UAMS, Dr. Bill Culp. In that time period, there were no good proven treatments for stroke. They had not yet been invented. Dr. Martin Radvani. If we institute a very um, rigorous program of that, especially within the first three to six months, that really gives them their best chance of recovery. And Dr. Sanjeeva Antidu. Arkansas has a very large network of uh, telestroke program called ER Saves. So we are connected to 53 hospitals in the state. There are stroke neurologists on call who sees that patients and uh, advise on treatment. That stroke, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, right after the news. Hi, everyone. I'm Phil Marriage, and this is Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Our program today focuses on one of the most life-changing medical events for all of us to understand more, and that is stroke. Stroke is the leading cause of serious long-term disability in the United States, and each year approximately 795,000 people suffer a stroke. Nearly one-fourth of those strokes occur in people under the age of 65. Unless a member of your family or close friend ever experiences a stroke, many of us really do not understand the experiences that those individuals endure. And I say that from personal experience. About a year and a half ago, my brother had a stroke come out of nowhere. And up until then, as probably many of you listen to the program, don't know much about stroke, don't know what to expect. That's what we want to talk about today with my guest, all from UAMS, here today in the studio. Speaking from that older perspective is Dr. Bill Culp. He's a professor of radiology, surgery, and neurology, and since 2012, he has also served as vice chair for radiology research. He has many years of clinical experience and experience in, in developing new stroke therapies, as well as studying stroke treatments, including interventional radiology. Dr. Culp is the first recipient of the Jonathan S. Fitch Distinguished Chair in Stroke and Neurocritical Care. He's a part of the American Board of Radiology and Vascular and Interventional Radiology. Dr. Culp, glad to have you here today. Very nice to be here. Thank you. And then speaking from that middle perspective is Dr. Martin Radvani. He's an internationally known leader in interventional neuroradiology and specialist in vascular disorders of the brain and spine. He's a professor in the UAMS Department of Radiology and chief of interventional radiology. Dr. Redvani worked with teams of internationally known specialists developing endovascular techniques and medical devices for the treatment of brain aneurysms, stroke, vascular malformations, and pseudotumor cerebri syndrome. That's a condition that arises when pressures inside the skull get very high. So, Dr. Redvani, thanks for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. And then speaking from that younger perspective is Dr. Sanjeevi Antidu. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Neurology here at UAMS College of Medicine, and he fellowship trained in the University of Massachusetts Medical Center, and then he completed his residency here at UAMS. And Dr. Antidu is a part of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology, and he serves as the medical director for ARSAVES, Arkansas SAVES, which is Arkansas Stroke, Assistance through virtual emergency support. Dr. Antidu, glad to have you here today, too. Glad to be here. Well, as I said in the intro portion of uh, this segment, my brother had a stroke, and really leading up into that time, stroke really 
was a word I knew about. I knew of a few people through time. I've seen people who have had stroke. But my conceptions of what a person goes through with stroke and how it happens and all that, I learned a lot, as I hope many of you do today as we listen to the program. But let me start with you, Dr. Culp. I'd like to ask about what would be the attitude if we were talking 50 or 60 years ago, 70 years ago, about stroke. What would be the known factors about stroke? In that time period, there were no good proven treatments for stroke. They had not yet been invented, and we simply did what seemed right at the time. Then, and, and what would people be looking forward to in the way of how they would be treated? In that time period, there were no good proven treatments for stroke. They had not yet been invented, and we simply did what seemed right at the time. We might treat supportively for stroke, but it was mostly watching the natural physiology of the process progress. So folks would, in most cases, get a little better. If they were severe strokes, they probably wouldn't get a little better. They'd get a little worse or die. So about uh, 10 to 15 percent of folks died then, and a much smaller number actually got good recovery all on their own. By the time I got my MD degree, we were treating strokes with carbon dioxide inhalation to vasodilate the blood vessels. Not only did that not work, it actually made folks worse, but that was the best thought of the time. Since then, we've had some great strides forward which I hope we get to talk about today. We will. Now, uh, you mentioned in those times, uh, did they try a lot of surgery? Uh, how, what, what did they really try to do to figure it out? Well, they, they tried to thin the blood so the clots would not be so persistent, and that did not do very well. Just thinning the blood so it doesn't clot is fairly easy, but it doesn't get rid of the clots that you already have. So the strokes would persist and blood thinning gave its own problems and increased bleeding, and uh, uh, that could be very, very bad in the case of a hemorrhagic stroke. So mostly we did not do very well until about 1995. 19, that's pretty close to us, isn't it? <laughs> it's real close to us. Uh, I, I was in practice at that time, and I clearly remember the change that happened because all of a sudden we had a randomized control trial that proved you could bust up the clots with a drug called TPA. And that drug would actually destroy the clots that were causing the stroke. Uh, it, was, it was night and day. All of a sudden we could do something that really mattered for the folks that had ischemic strokes. Did that come from research, or how did how'd that come about? It came directly out of the research uh, world. The first big paper was a study done in 1985 on rabbits, and it was uh, groundbreaking stuff. Once that was done and showed that you could break up the clots in a stroke in a rabbit, then they decided to do the study on humans. It took 10 years for that study to be done, and it was published in the New England Journal in 1995 and set the scene for all the IV treatment of stroke with TPA ever since. Critically important paper, and that's what the folks that 
get treated now mostly get. Until about 2014, that was the best we had. Then some arterial work, like Dr. Advani does, where he puts a tiny catheter into the clot and sucks it out one way or another, was published again in the New England Journal, and it proved that we can do better than the IV drugs, especially in strokes that are caused by large clots where the, the drug just isn't powerful enough. Mm -hmm. Well, when you started your, your training, did you train with the focus on strokes, or did, is that something you just kind of got into as time went on? I was certainly trained in, in taking care of strokes uh, when I was in uh, 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 medical school, but the treatment then was almost non-existent. You would, you would simply try to prevent aspiration, you'd try to prevent pneumonia, you'd try to prevent the things that come with stroke, but you would not be able to do anything definitive about reestablishing blood flow. Mm -hmm. You'd put them on blood thinners so they wouldn't have any more strokes, but that caused its own problems. So uh, it was very disappointing for me as an intern to try to treat a stroke and see the patient get worse. So the group of people or doctors you were working with, nationally even, most of them were in the same boat? Well, we were all in the same boat. Nobody mm -hmm. knew how to do anything that was really good. Up to what year? 1995. Dr. Redvani, there's so much to talk about with strokes. Can you, at this point, give us a little bit of an idea of what kind of strokes people have? Well, strokes are really, there are two types. There are ischemic strokes, which are the ones that we're really talking about where there's a blood clot in a, in a vessel that's preventing blood from getting to the brain. And then there are hemorrhagic strokes where you, there's bleeding into the brain. And so those are the minority. Probably about 20% of strokes are hemorrhagic strokes. The vast majority are what we call ischemic strokes. And those are really the ones that we treat with the medications as well as the devices to pull the clots out of patients, uh, out of the large vessels. Now, of those two types, do they branch off? Does each, each branch have, a, like, specialty strokes or are there all kinds? Is it just a stroke, a stroke? There's different management. When we have a patient with a ischemic stroke, there is a blockage of a vessel. So I, if the patient is a candidate for treatment with IV therapy, they receive IV therapy, and then we image them to determine whether there's a large vessel. That's, that was really the big, um, in addition to the devices, that was the big change that came about is we developed imaging protocols to evaluate patients to see if they had a stroke. So patients get the medication, the, the TPA medication, and then undergo imaging of the blood vessels to see is there a vessel that is blocked off that we can potentially go in and open up. So when did you start your training? What year? Well, I started my initial training in 1996. Was oh, I, just after all this started. <laughs> just after all this started. Um, and I really, but at that time, it was primarily the medications. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't really have good tools. We tried all sorts of things, wires and other catheters, trying to really uh, find ways to break up the clot so this medication could be more effective. And then uh, the devices were created, the, the devices that were in use today, really 2012 is when they became available in the United States. Really? And in 2015, there were five papers published 
within six months in the New England Journal of Medicine from around the world demonstrating the effectiveness of these new devices, and that completely changed the paradigm of stroke treatment. So strokes are really uh, cutting edge. Uh, we're at the cutting edge, right? Well, uh, Dr. Antidu, from that younger perspective, um, what do young people think about strokes? So when I started my training back in uh, 2009 at uh, University of Arkansas for neurology training, uh, the TPA, the IV therapy for strokes, was well uh, used. So there was a uh, big push for trying to get any uh, additional therapies for these kind of patients. And during my fellowship, we were trying to see if there is any success with the interventional trials, trying to take the clots out with these big, large vessel occlusions. And we had a few papers when I was about to finish in 2003 where the studies did not show any benefit. A lot of the community, a lot of the people were disappointed with that trial. And everyone thought interventions would work for these kind of things. And uh, as uh, Dr. Radwani was saying, 2004, 2014, and 2015, all these studies have come by, five studies, and later two more studies showed that there is benefit with these interventions. Mm -hmm. Recently, there have been studies to treat this kind of stroke patients in select group of patients up to 24 hours, and that's a recent advancement. Mm-hmm. Um, you're listening to Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Our topic today is stroke with my guests, Dr. Bill Culp, Dr. Martin Radvani, and Dr. Sanjeeva Antedu. All of them are from UMS, and we'll be right back after this short break. We are back. I'm Phil Marriage, and this is Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, talking about strokes today with my guests, Dr. Bill Culp, Dr. Martin Radvani, and Dr. Sanjeeva Antidu. With this early talk about strokes, it's really surprised me in our first segment where we talked about 1995. I mean, I've known people in years gone by when I was young that seems like when you had a stroke, your life was pretty much over. And then I've seen a few people recently that have had strokes for a while, but they've been coming back. And from a personal standpoint, I saw what my brother went through when he had his stroke. He wasn't prepared for that. Dr. Radvani, let's stay with you. What are the signs of stroke that people should know? I refer to this young man. He's a smart one when it comes to that. So to educate public, uh, we had uh, simple acronyms. We teach FAST and be fast. FAST stands for face, arm. Yes, stands for speech. T is for time. So if you notice any facial droop, uh, drift in your arm, or any slurred speech, it's time to call 911. Recently, we expanded this to be fast. B is for balance, and E is for eyes or vision. So if you notice any of this, any balance problems, any vision problems, any facial droop, any arm or leg weakness, and any uh, speech problems, it's time to call 911. How can we ignore that advice? And I'm, I'm saying that from my brother's standpoint. He was about four days into this thing before he recognized what was happening. I think the problem is part of it is public education, is really educating the public on what these signs and symptoms are. And I think an even bigger problem is stroke doesn't hurt. So if you're having a heart attack and you have chest pain and something hurts, people are programmed. You go seek help. With strokes, it can be much more subtle. The arm's a little weak. It feels like, oh, I, you know, I slept on it wrong. I did something wrong. It'll get better until it doesn't. And that's really the biggest challenge is for patients to take these subtle symptoms seriously or their family members who are with them to recognize that the patient's having a stroke. But don't we all have those subtle things that happen that we ignore? 
I mean, I'm 69, and I remember over the course of my last maybe 15 or 20 years, something happening here or something happening here, and I think, well, what is that? But I ignore it. I don't add up the signs. Well, I think, you know, some of the more pronounced signs. So I've had patients who I many times when I talk to patients who I've treated, they have been having symptoms for a month or so, sometimes longer. I had one patient who was telling me, you know, when they were driving, it felt like a lampshade, you know, a shade went down over their eye, but it got better. So they just kept on driving. And I happened to be seeing them in follow-up in my clinic, and I immediately said, I, for me, that's a big red flag. I sent them immediately for imaging. And sure enough, we ended up admitting the patient. She had a preocclusive narrowing of the artery in her neck, and we ended up treating her the next day. But these are the kind of the subtle signs that patients, they're, they're really not that subtle, but patients ignore them. And that's, I think, one of the big challenges. Um, probably, I would say, at least half the patients that I've spoken with who I've treated, they tell me that they had these intermittent episodes where their arm, you know, the whole arm was kind of getting numb, but it got better. Um, they were, had this numb, weird numbness on their face, but it got better <laughs> until it didn't. <laughs> How many but until it got better episodes should we except before we actually take advantage. You should never you should never wait for it to improve. There's no number of episodes. If you have symptoms, you should go see a doctor. Strokes are really dramatic, so people can tell what time they had strokes. So usually people can tell uh, at 5.59 p.m. I started to have these symptoms. So strokes are really dramatic. Never wait for them to get better. Um, if you're having these problems getting better and you are, even if you're back to yourself, it's uh, best to go and get treated, get uh, evaluated at least to see what's the problem, what's causing the stroke. Mm -hmm. um, there are these uh, entities called transient ischemic attacks. So people who have this, we have to evaluate them for uh, cause of the TIAs, we call them, so that they don't end up having uh, permanent brain damage so that they don't end up having a stroke. Is that what you call a minor stroke? Yes. Mm -hmm. Dr. Culp, do older people um, listen to their bodies for, uh, for um, strokes? Not very well. The uh, average older person is used to having aches, pains, and complaints. Uh, certainly I am. And uh, it would be hard to uh, uh, accept the fact that you're having a stroke because nobody wants to have one. So you deny it for a little while, and then it might become so obvious that you could not deny it anymore. I wish people were more sensitive. We see this almost uh, every week in some of the groups that I, I participate in. Somebody will have symptoms, and they will say, well, it got better, and I didn't do anything. And uh, they're just waiting for the big one to go off when they must do something and it may be too late. Speaking of, speaking of the big one, and, and I, as I was reading about strokes and I've heard over time that time is the most critical thing when it comes to stroke. You guys tell me about time from either a young person or older person. How so, critical is time? So time is brain. Uh, so each minute of untreated strokes, you lose up to close to 2 million neurons. So each minute of untreated strokes, you lose 2 million neurons to stroke. 
So time is brain, time is everything. So the approved treatments for IVTPA, they can only be given until four and a half hours since symptom onset. So the treatment for IVTPA, it has a very time critical component. Why? Because if we give this treatment beyond that time, there's a risk that we can cause more harm than help the patients with stroke. Since TPA is a powerful clot-busting medication, we want to uh, try to bust that clot before it caused permanent brain damage. So if you try to open that blood vessel up after it caused uh, permanent brain damage, it can cause bleeding into that area of stroke, which will cause more problems for people. So time is really critical. So things to remember is the sooner we treat these patients with this clot-busting medication, the better their outcomes are. Mm. We did an experiment in an animal model of stroke and have a neuroprotective drug that reverses the, uh, the uh, findings in stroke uh, almost completely. If we gave it one hour after occlusion, we got beautiful results. If we gave it two hours after occlusion, we still got very nice results. Same for three hours. But if you wait six hours, we got no result. It was simply too late. So we have a window of someplace around three hours to get blood flowing again to the brain or the damage becomes much more permanent. So the person that's um, experiencing one of these things that they're about to ignore and they waste the first hour ignoring it, They've killed a bunch of cells, right? A bunch of neurons. And so those, they're gone. They're gone. Well, I know, I know there's a lot to talk about recovery, but, and I, I can't get past the fact of, of what my brother experienced. He waited about three days before, uh, they were in uh, Destin, Florida, and he lives in Springfield, Missouri, and they were there with a family thing, and he started feeling this stuff. He didn't say anything till he got home. And then he, he, he collapsed in the closet and uh, he's had a heck of a time for the last year and a half or so recovering speech and all that. We'll get into all that, too. But So he wasted the three hours completely. And those of you listening to the program today, if you've already wasted an hour or two, maybe you only got an hour and a half an hour left, right? Right. Okay, so if I've, if I've had um, an event or two and I've used up a couple, an hour or so, and then I have another event— do you know that when you come in, do, do you see this in the patient when they come in, that they've wasted a lot of time? We don't typically focus on that. If the patients are here after two hours of their symptom onset, we try to treat them as soon as possible. That's our goal. Our goals for treatments are since they come to the ED door, we want to give them this clot-busting medication within 45 minutes. So that's our goal. The sooner we give this drug, the better for patients. Okay, so if, if, you, if they don't tell you correctly how much time they've used, they've had it for a couple of days, you'd still give them that to start with? No, we no? ask uh, this question very uh, so many times, so many ways to make sure when did the stroke um, started to happen. So if the stroke started to happen a few days ago, they started to have some problems with right-sided weakness, and then slowly it got worse, and then now they decided to come to the emergency room, we don't treat those patients since they, they started to happen a few days ago. Yeah. I think one of the other things that's uh, developed over time is imaging. So 
The one thing that we've become much uh, better at is using uh, CT scan and MRI to select patients for treatment. So those studies are very sensitive, and we can see using those studies if a patient's had a stroke that is completed or that is so big that going in and doing something or even giving the medication would actually cause more damage than good. So there are instances when we can treat patients a little bit further out, um, but it's really time is still of the essence. Um, even when we do treatments where we pull the clot out, we know that if patients arrive within three hours, they have about a 60% chance of having a good, a good outcome. If they arrive at six hours, that drops to about 40%. But it still doesn't reach zero until some later time, and we don't know what that time is. It may be 16 hours or 24 hours in some patients with good collaterals. Yeah. Uh, now, does now t talk to me about the age of the of the patient when they come in. If they're under 20, or do you do you see people under 20 with strokes? We do. We do see patients. Young patients have strokes. Are they worse because they're younger, or not so bad? It, Usually they are worse because the cause of stroke is different in younger people. Really? They most commonly they have uh, blood problems causing them to have strokes. Usually they have bigger blood clots. Um, and there are other scenarios, sickle cell disease, especially in younger population, uh, that can cause strokes. And um, patients who are between 20 and 40, a lot of people can have tear in their arteries, causing a, a blockage of one of the bigger blood vessels. Um, so there is a difference between age and what kind of strokes they can usually have. Dr. Advani, any, any more about that as from your experience no, with the I, age? I would, I would agree completely. Um, we've had patients um, of all age groups. I've The youngest patient I've treated uh, was 16 years old. The oldest patient I've treated was 94. Really? And, you know, it's really age is, you know, Age is a number. It, it, we have patients in all those age groups who can do very well, but it has to do with how fast the patient gets to the hospital. Do they get treated in time? You know, they didn't ignore the symptoms. You know, they got there, their family got them there very quickly. And we were able to activate the stroke alert just as we do for a heart attack or a trauma case and get all the teams in place and activated very quickly so that we could give the treatment as quickly as possible, give the medication if it was appropriate or go in and pull the clot out if that was if that was appropriate as well. Well, you, you said it mentioned the word team. So if I have a stroke this afternoon and I go to the hospital, what team am I going to see? So the first thing I want to emphasize is if you're having symptoms of stroke, don't drive. Call, <laughs> okay. Call 911. Because when you call, uh, when you start to drive, it's not safe for you. It's not safe for people right. outside. And EMS people, ambulance service, they know how to start treatment even before you reach hospital. Oh, what would they do in, a, in an ambulance? They make sure your oxygen levels are appropriate. Uh, they can check your blood pressure. They can get history about your medications. They can uh, give us information about when your stroke started to happen. They convey all this uh, information to emergency room. And if you're appropriate for therapies, they activate stroke alert system. And once it's activated, there are a lot of people who get notified about uh, a patient coming to their ED. So a neurologist will meet them in the ED room when the um, ambulance is bringing you in. 
and they meet them in the head CT, CT scanner. So they do things right away. Uh, there have been studies which have been done which showed that if you uh, call 911, your treatments are much sooner, maybe sooner up to 15 minutes or more, for rather than if you go to the ER by your own vehicle. Mm -hmm. uh, so once you come to the ED, then the ED physician will meet you there, then your algae uh, physician will meet you there, and if appropriate, neurointervention radiologist mm -hmm. like Dr. Radvani will meet you there in the ED. And once we get the CT scans done, we'll decide on appropriate treatment. Are these things pretty much readily available in most all hospitals? Uh, UMS has been a comprehensive stroke uh, uh, hospital in the state, and this is the only comprehensive stroke uh, hospital in the state. We got our certification today, actually. Really? So this certification tells us that we are meeting the highest and the most strict uh, criteria for being a stroke center. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you come to EMS, we offer uh, the standard treatment, and we offer very high standard of care for our stroke patients, mm -hmm. uh, along with all the latest uh, therapies, including interventional radiology, who, who are here 24-7, no matter what time, what day of the week. Well, what is interventional radiology? I know I read about that in your, your bios and, and somewhere. What is that? So interventional neuroradiology, sometimes it's called neurointerventional radiology or endovascular surgical neuroradiology, and it's really a subspecialty um, of radiology where we use um, small tubes, catheters, and, and guide wires, small wires, to perform minimally invasive procedures to include stroke therapy. So we enter the blood vessel, um, an artery we can in a wrist or an elbow or down at the in the leg near the um, in the groin area and then under x-ray guidance we advance these tools up through the blood vessels um, into the brain to treat stroke and we are able to use the tools to pull in this in the case of stroke pull clots out of the brain okay so that's a clot that's a, what is that a, is there a name for a clot in the brain as opposed to somewhere else it's just I, nope. It's just the blood clot. It just, happened to go to the brain, and uh -huh. that's why it's causing a stroke. Sometimes they can go to other parts of the body, and it might cause you know a cold leg or um, other other problems. Um, patients, there older patients. I'm kind of getting a little off track here, but older patients can have an irregular heart rhythm, the called atrial fibrillation, mm -hmm. and the incidence of that is higher as we get older. And clots can form in the heart and then shower. And sometimes those clots can go to the brain. Sometimes they can go to other parts of the body. But it's most obvious when a patient's having a stroke, uh, mm -hmm. secondary to that. Uh, Dr. Kalt, do uh, primary what pl what place do primary physicians play in uh, finding out that or, or assessing a person that comes in but they don't know they're having a stroke? Well, that that's an, an extremely important role. Uh, most folks don't recognize strokes. Most docs should recognize strokes. So if you're seeing your primary physician uh, anywhere in the state, they should be able to recognize the basics of a stroke and guide you to one of the stroke-ready hospitals, one of the primary stroke centers, or to the comprehensive stroke centers such as we are. And they would probably not let you drive there, right? They certainly should not. Uh, but 
uh, I have encountered lots of folks who are stro uh, strong-willed and try to do things they should not do. And that's one of the most common ones that we see is that people insist on driving themselves to the hospital, and that's just basically wrong. Wrong for a lot of reasons. Wrong a for lot of reasons. A lot of reasons. My wife's primary uh, a physician in Hot Springs at uh, one of the uh, clinics down there, and she had a patient uh, yesterday that came in, and she recognized this, and he put up a stink about, and, and the hospital was right across the street. And, and she put him in an ambulance and took him over there, and she said for a lot of reasons, one liability and, and, and the safety of every, everybody like that. So it's a, a scary thing. We have one more break to take, so stay with us for more on stroke. You're listening to Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow here on KUAR. I'm Phil Marriage, and again, our focus today is on strokes. I hope you're learning something from it. I know I sure am. My three guests are all from UAMS, Dr. Bill Culp, speaking more from that older perspective, Dr. Martin Redvani in the middle, and Dr. Sanjeeva Antudu in that younger perspective. In the last segment, we're talking about the, the time involved there and what comes up when you go to the hospital and you mentioned the radiology portion of it and sticking things in bodies. I want to ask you about something. In preparation for this, I went to YouTube and I was looking for things about stroke. I learned about a thing called the Watchman. And I didn't realize what this watchman was until I watched this YouTube thing. So I encourage you in the listening audience here to go to YouTube and just search stroke watchman. Okay, you guys, tell us what watchman is. Uh, watchman is a device that can be placed in the heart uh, to help prevent stroke. So there's a portion of the heart called the left, left atrial appendage, and clots tend to form there in patients who have this irregular heartbeat, uh, atrial fibrillation. And there are many therapies that can be done for that. A subspecialty of cardiology, electrophysiologists will sometimes try and go in and actually treat the abnormal pathways in the heart that are causing that, that irregular rhythm. Uh, some patients don't respond to that uh, or are not candidates for it for various reasons. Another option for some patients, again, is this device that is placed within that portion of the heart, and it seals off that area where the clots can form. And so this is another potential treatment for patients with irregular heartbeat. And how does that work? It's basically a small plug, if you looked at it, and it's inserted through the heart into that area. It kind of expands on its own and just is anchored there, and then it heals over about uh, the course of about three to six months. The body heals it in, and it becomes part of the heart. And that area behind it where the clot used to form is no, a clot can form there, but it's now held in place by the device and it can no longer come out and go to the brain and cause a stroke. Is that something you do at UMS too? In select group of patients. But it has to do with atrial fibrillation? Uh, yes. I'd say the primary treatment in patients with atrial fibrillation is anticoagulation or a blood thinner to help prevent the clot from even forming in the first place. One of the challenges with that is the medication makes the blood very thin, as Dr. Culp was pointing out earlier, and sometimes thin blood has its own set of uh, problems. Uh, it can cause, if the blood gets too thin from some of these medications, you can end up with a brain hemorrhage, and so you have a hemorrhagic stroke as opposed to an ischemic stroke. So in trying to prevent ischemic stroke from happening, you can actually end up with uh, more problems. Well, Dr. Culp, in the earlier days of understanding stroke, were strokes more thought to be hemorrhagic or the ischemic, or did, did you figure it out early? 
That's been figured out for a long time. Ischemic has been the predominant type for forever, uh, at least in my uh, 52 years in medicine. Uh, yes, uh, it's always been the, the dominant one. The devices that you were just mentioning are fairly new, and I just saw a paper uh, last month about having the patent foramen ovale occlusion in select patients. Another similar sort of device where the the hole in the heart is plugged up and prevents clots from going through. I think there are a few other potentials there, but most potentials for reducing stroke are centered around controlling hypertension, controlling diabetes, and obesity, and smoking. Those are where the money is. We are Arkansas is in the stroke belt. That means the incidence of strokes is higher than national average. And we were number one in stroke mortality several years ago with the efforts of uh, the UMS and ERCs, the Telestroke uh, Program Network. Now we are in number six. So education, primary preventions are uh, very important for preventing strokes. And as Dr. Kalp was saying, high blood pressure, obesity, <coughs> diabetes, smoking prevention are the key. Obesity, I think we are number one in the country. We are the obese state in the country now. Uh, so obesity is a huge problem. Age-wise, too. By nature itself, older people have increased uh, risk of having strokes. African-American population have increased risk of having strokes. Uh, so the older you get, you're more risk for having stroke. Those patients are unfortunately kind of setting themselves up. I mean, all the things that lead to cardiac disease and heart attacks are also the same risk factors that lead to stroke. You know, the, the things that you do, you know, as, we, as we've been talking about, when I'm talking to patients, quit smoking. <laughs> that's probably, you know, that's right, that's number one at the top. And then medications, take, you know, see a physician regularly, have a regular, you know, checkup. If you have high blood pressure, get, take your high blood pressure medications. If you have high cholesterol, then take your cholesterol medications. Try and eat well as well. It's, these are the guidelines, you know, that we've known for over 30 years um, for heart disease, and we're finding out that these are the same things that increase the risk of stroke as well. You know, we said early in the program that uh, people don't know they're having a stroke or they ignore it, and you have just mentioned, you guys have just mentioned probably the best thing to prevent heart attack and stroke, but are people listening? They are listening. It seems very frustrating since we see strokes every day. But if you look at the statistics since World War II, the level, the incidence of strokes has dropped dramatically in the U.S. That's in large part due to controlling the things we just mentioned. Now we said obesity, but uh, blood pressure, that's, that's another big one? That's probably the biggest one. Many people have high blood pressure. Many people get treated. Many people get better on the treatment, so they stop the treatment. And back comes the high blood pressure. This is, I think, the, the modus operandi of the American mind. Uh, we need to fix it because once you're on those medicines, you will need something probably for the rest of your life. So keep taking the medicine, keep seeing your doctor, keep on the job, and you can prevent a large number of these strokes. All these same risk factors cause atherosclerotic vascular disease. So the same things that cause narrowing of the arteries in the heart also can cause narrowing of the arteries in the neck and the vessels going to the brain. So it can be 
it can be much more challenging. Approximately 10% of the stroke cases that I treat endovascularly actually occur because of blockages of the artery in the neck. The stroke happens because of that artery narrows down and then a blood clot goes to the brain from uh, the neck as opposed to the heart. I don't smoke, and there's a lot of people that have never smoked. And we may think we're getting off scot-free on this discussion here, but for those of us who are not obese and don't have high blood pressure and we don't smoke and all that stuff, are we still pretty prone to stroke? Yes, there are certain non-modifiable risk factors, we call them. Genes also play a role. There's not a one particular gene, but there's assumed to be a lot of genes which play a part in having people at increased risk of having strokes. So even if you don't smoke, even if you don't, uh, even if you're not obese, even if you don't have high blood pressure, you're still at increased risk of, uh, you can have strokes. You have regular checkups with your doctor. If you start to notice one of these signs and symptoms of stroke, be fast. Don't ignore them. Don't think uh, uh, you don't have any of this problem. Probably it's not a stroke. It's better to be checked out rather than wait and watch. Okay. Then we get to this part of the discussion and many of our topics of cost. There's a lot of people who may listen to this and say, well, okay, I agree with all this stuff, but I can't afford or I don't think I can afford or I don't have insurance or whatever. What do they do? The cost of treatment is probably lower than cost of disability. So when people have stroke, there are treatments available which can potentially reverse your symptoms and give your life back. And if you are worried about uh, upfront costs, and if you're worried about if you stay at home and if you have, if you cannot use one side of your body and if you're not able to work, and that will put your uh, life, have a lot of disability. However you look at it, the cost-benefit analysis, you better get treated. I think you kind of hit on it a little bit at the beginning of the discussion with your family member that how life-changing oh, yeah. a stroke is and a severe stroke that leaves you with not, you can't use your arms or you can't talk to somebody and express yourself or you can't understand what somebody's saying completely changes your life. And suddenly it's, you know, the quality of life is, it changes completely. Mm -hmm. You, you know, you can no longer enjoy your children, your grandchildren. I mean, we know that when, you know, if a patient has had a stroke and we get them treated, Afterwards, one of the most important things is getting um, their therapy afterwards. Physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy are essential uh, for patients who have had a stroke. If we institute a very um, rigorous program of that, especially within the first three to six months, that really gives them their best chance of recovery. Let's so. talk about recovery a little bit. Uh, Dr. Culp, what do you see in, in older patients? It seems like everything is individual, so some do excellent recoveries and some do not. It is hard for me to judge on the front end which is going to be which. But the most common course is one of slow improvement, not over just the first few weeks, but over the first several months and even the first year or two. As patients learn to compensate for their disabilities, they will create new abilities. And often, two years out, they will be doing much better than they were two months out. But two years sounds like a long time when you're just beginning that process. Do older people tend to give up on it? Some do. Some will simply crawl back into a shell and disappear. 
Mm-hmm. It is extremely sad to think of some grandparent giving up a life with children. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is hard on everybody. The, the burden of damaged folks from stroke is huge in this country, and we need to do better at it, really do. Is there much support for those who have had stroke? There's certainly rehabilitation hospitals. There are all sorts of physical therapy uh, approaches, and that is beyond what I research. Right. So I think we better let the others talk about that. Um, as Senator Kalpo was saying, there are rehab hospitals, there are long-term care facilities, there are nursing homes uh, available. Uh, depending upon what kind of strokes, how much disability they have, um, and what kind of insurance they have. And family support is also really important for their recovery, too. What scale of recovery is there for those who actually take advantage of that time element and they get in there as quick as they can, they get the drug that you're talking about, can they really fully expect to recover? Uh, We had a lot of success stories where patients had a perfect story they come to the hospital as soon as within within an hour. They get this clot-busting medication, go to intervention radiology suite where they get their clots taken out, and they walk out of hospital in day or two. And there are other end of the patients who wait a long time to come in. And by the time they come in, they have a large stroke set in. They can't participate in therapy because they cannot understand because of the speech problems and they have to end up going to a nursing home. Mm-hmm. So there are several factors included, depends on how you recover uh, from the stroke. But the thing you have to remember is the brain cells or neurons are your bond with all the neurons you're ever going to have. Your body cannot produce new neurons. So rehab will help neuroplasticity. Some of the remaining neurons will take over the function and it depends upon how soon you start therapy, what kind of treatments you had, um, and what kind of uh, other comorbid health conditions you have. Talk to me about where we're headed in the future. Now, we mentioned in the beginning that 1995, just a few days ago, was kind of the point where we've really become the end of the modern age with uh, talking about stroke. But what's out ahead technologically or medically for stroke? Is there, are there any new drugs that are coming out or therapies that are coming out? Dr. Kalb here has been pioneering a neuroprotective agent called DDFPE. We just finished a phase one trial, safety trial here. The key research part is that once we give this medication to anyone with stroke symptoms, uh, it will increase the potential treatment time. That's what uh, Dr. Kalb has been pioneering all these years. Tell me about your pioneering. What have you been doing? Well, we've we've been uh, pushing this now for uh, about uh, seven or eight years. It is uh, an interesting concept that we can reverse the uh, damage in the brain in several different animal models, and we have now taken this into the human trial, which we have just completed. I must say that I have a patent on this, and therefore I must... uh, make sure that everybody understands that I might be biased. Uh, uh, Well, we might be interested. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of the things you get to be with this age is uh, unconcerned about uh, such things. Uh, My concern here is purely one of providing a service that is not available now, and I fully expect this 
if it continues as it has so far, to be readily available in about five years and really make it different in that instead of looking at a two or three hour window, we'll be looking at a 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 hour window for reestablishing blood flow. It would be wonderful, but it's all pie in the sky right now. Uh, so we cannot, uh, we cannot promise what we can't deliver. What else is out there uh, technologically or tools? Anything coming up in, in that? Uh, technologically, one of the ways we have reached out more patients within the time period is telestroke. Arkansas has a very large network of uh, telestroke program called ER Saves. Uh, it is run uh, from UAMS, uh, Centers for Distance Health. So we are connected to 53 hospitals in the state. So whenever there is a patient who comes to their hospital with stroke-like symptoms, there are uh, stroke neurologists on call who sees that patients and uh, advise on treatment. So we have treated um, uh, more than 1,000 patients since the start of this program. Really? Wow. We have seen last year, in 2017, we have seen more than 1,000 patients in the program treated uh, around 340 patients with uh, IVTPA, and we had uh, brought in about 150 patients for possible clot retrieval therapy. So uh, this is a way to reach more patients who don't have access to a neurologist. And Arkansas has a very good stroke program, and there are improvements being made in devices so that uh, it's better easier to do this kind of procedure. And there's a lot of research going on to uh, look at different group of populations who, who can be treated outside this traditional time window. Um, so there's a lot of research going on. I'd so, like to uh, endorse the AR Saves concept. We have been able to deliver clot-busting drugs in tiny towns all over this state much quicker than if they lived here in Little Rock. Really? It is a wonderful system when it works so well for so many people who otherwise would have nothing. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion on stroke today. It surely is a medical uh, condition that impacts so many lives, and if it hasn't yet, it may in the future. So I hope you may remember some of what you've heard today or share it with other family members you have about what they might do if they're experiencing some symptoms that you may recognize, you may rattle their cage and say, hey, you better do something about that. Right, guys? Yes. <laughs> I do want to thank my guests for being with me here today. Dr. Bill Kupp spoke from that uh, older generation perspective. He's a professor of radiology, surgery, and neurology here at UAMS. Dr. Martin Redvani is also internationally known as a, as a leader in interventional neuroradiology, and he's a specialist in vascular disorders of the brain and spine. And then also Dr. Sanjeeva Antadu is speaking from that younger uh, perspective. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Neurology here at UAMS, and he is the uh, medical director of what we just talked about a minute ago, AR Saves, Arkansas Stroke Assistance Through Virtual Emergency Support. I do want to thank all of you guys for being here today. Really, it was a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for thank having you us. For having thank us. you. Uh, you can download this and many of our past programs from the KUAR.org site by clicking on Programs, and you have to scroll all the way to the last page. YTT is produced for KUAR in partnership with the University of Arkansas Little Rock. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month.